This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by The Spark. Ever wondered what inspires someone to make a difference through their work? What gets someone's neurons zapping during the nine to five? The Spark is a new podcast about inspiration, innovation, and the mind at work, as told by Philip's employees. Whether it's sneaking out of cancer wards or experimenting with laser-guided ant breathalyzers, no idea is too big or too small. The Spark, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 13, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, contributing correspondent Lizzie Wade is here with a story on what genomics is revealing about the history of Latin America during colonization. And Kang Quen Ni is here to talk about building a molecule from exactly two atoms. Not a pile of one kind of atoms and a pile of another kind of atoms, just two atoms making one molecule and then watching it happen. Now we have Lizzie Wade, a contributing correspondent for science. She wrote a story this week on forgotten ancestors in Latin America. Welcome, Lizzie. Hi, Sarah. This story is about, you know, using genomic or genetic data to reveal some things about past populations in Latin America, particularly during the colonial period. There was just so many people who were there. Like it was the first place that everyone in the world really met each other for the first time. I mean, since people moved out of Africa, basically. You know, you had indigenous Americans, obviously, Europeans. You also had Africans, some of whom were enslaved, but also many of whom were not. A lot of people from Asia, because Spain was also, it also colonized the Philippines and Mexico City and these others, especially these other urban centers of Latin America and port cities really drew people in from all over the world. And when you have that kind of foment and complexity, it's really hard for historical records to capture all of the details. Right. So that's where the hidden or forgotten comes from. So yeah, there's evidence or the records are still in people's genes. We just don't necessarily have paperwork or historical documents or tales handed down that have this kind of specificity that you can get from genetics. Yeah. And I would say historians did know a lot about this stuff, but really in terms of what people know in the general population, it's very 
it's much more limited. Okay, well, let's, you kind of talk about three different threads of research going on in your story. So let's take this one on genomic study in Mexico. And a researcher was trying to trace Chinese ancestry using a set of genomes from modern day Mexicans. And they did find Chinese ancestry, but they found other kinds of Asian ancestry as well. Can you talk a little bit about what they were expecting to find and why? Sure. So the person who did this research is named Juan Esauen Rodriguez, and he's a graduate student at a lab in, in Mexico. And he is from Mexicali, which is near the border with California. And in the 19th, late 19th and early 20th centuries, um, Mexico did a lot of railroad construction and a lot of Chinese immigrants moved to Mexico to work on those projects, kind of similar to how they did in California. His advisor had done this study sort of looking at diversity genomic diversity in Mexicans throughout the country, looking at different indigenous groups and how it sort of tracked with how people mixed and when. But the, his grad student said, you didn't do anything about Asians. Like, I know a ton of Mexicans who have Asian ancestors, right, <laughs> and from where I live. So he wanted to look at that. And so he did find, you know, plenty of people in the north of Mexico who had some Chinese ancestry, presumably from these the railroad workers. But he also found this surprising cluster of Asian ancestry in, in Guerrero, which is a Pacific coastal state north of Oaxaca, pretty far south in the country, which was like very far from where he was expecting it to be. What do we know about the people who were visiting that part of Mexico? You can sort of say which genetic variants in someone's genome likely, which genetic variants do they share with people in Asia today? And then you can sort, you can get even more specific thanks to these improving databases. You don't just have to say they're from Asia. You know, you can say like, are they from Japan? Are they from China? Are they from Indonesia? Oh, and, going past the <laughs> continent level. That's yeah. great. And when he did that, he found that most of the people in Guerrero came from Indonesia and the Philippines. And he could even get a little more, even more specific, like Borneo and Sumatra and he could get down to the island in some hmm. some cases, although these are people who live on those islands today. So there might have been some changes since they came over to Mexico. So he was like, OK, this is who these people, this is where these people's ancestors probably came from. What could have brought them here? So he started doing some historical research and learned about a slave trade that was really thriving in the 15 and 1600s between the Philippines and Mexico, where a lot of Southeast Asians particularly were brought from the Philippines to be sold as slaves in Mexico. And they were brought to Acapulco, which is the port city in Guerrero. So it made perfect sense that that's where this ancestry would show up the, the strongest. Yeah, so you hear a lot about the transatlantic slave trade, which of course is what brought Africans all over the world, but this was a trans-Pacific slave trade. And these people weren't recorded as any specific, they weren't recorded as Chinese or Indonesian or Filipino. Very similar to what happened when people were captured and sold out of Africa. You just lose the whole history and where specifically they came from other than this continent once they get to their new place. Really interesting. Let's move on to a second project you talk about, and this one is looking at African ancestry using bones from colonial cemeteries in Mexico City. What have they dug up so far? So, yeah, so there's a lot of bones in, in colonial cemeteries, obviously, <laughs> lots of bones all over Mexico. And basically, these researchers, they do these very precise measures of different features of people's skulls, particularly, and you can sort of tell Europeans tend to have 
this shape of nostril or whatever. And, and it's like a forensic technique for figuring out what population people probably belong to, although it's not as a sure thing as DNA. But when they dig up these, these cemeteries, one of which is actually from the main cathedral in Mexico City, and one of which is from a smaller town outside of Mexico City, they find, based on like the demography of the colony and things like that, they were expecting to find about 10% of the individuals that they would study would have some kind of African ancestry. And instead they found it was between 20 and 40% probably do. It was definitely known that Africans were a big part of the, of the Mexican colony or the Spanish colonies in general. And, you know, a lot of Mexicans today have kind of a low level of African ancestry kind of across the Mexican population. That's very common. But this was a much higher proportion than they were expecting to see, especially at a place like the main cathedral, which presumably was reserved for people who were quite important or highly positioned in the colonial government or something like that. It was not necessarily a place you would expect to find that many non-Spaniards. Does that mean that those people were 20% African, like they're Africans or they had... There are people there who were definitely born in Africa. Like I've seen skulls from different excavations that you can see people who have dental modifications. This one pretty famous skeleton has its teeth filed into like these diamond shapes that was known to have been practiced in, in specific places in Africa at the time. And they weren't doing that once you know, you got the, to the colonies. So you can tell that he was born in Africa. I'm not sure that they know for him ind individually, like why he ended up in Mexico, but you can definitely tell he's from there. A lot of these other people, though, that they're studying probably just have some African ancestry. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they are born in Africa and coming to Mexico later in their lives. It's like one of their parents or grandparents could have been African. And that's actually particularly interesting because there was there is known to be a lot of mixing between African and indigenous populations in mm -hmm. very early colonial Mexico, partly because if an African person and an indigenous person had a baby, even if the African person was a slave at the time that that happened, the baby would not be a slave, could not be a slave. Wow. So there was like a big social benefit to those kind of unions. And that's kind of how this African ancestry spread through the general Mexican population, kind of through this mixing with, with indigenous Americans. You mentioned that some of this is based on looking at skulls, but there's genetic evidence for how African ancestry is working at this time as well. Yeah. So there's a geneticist named Maria Avila who is working in the lab in Mexico, and she's studying communities today who have particularly high proportions of African ancestry in Mexico. So as I said, a lot of this African ancestry, the sort of early influx of Africans got spread out among a lot of the Mexican population, and everyone sort of has this low level of African ancestry. But there are these pockets particularly interestingly in Guerrero too, where the Asians were, these communities still have really high proportions of African ancestry, like 26% in some cases. And most Mexicans would have like something like 4%. So Maria has gone there and worked with the communities and gotten volunteers to give her their genetic data. And she's been able to tell what their average proportion of African ancestry, which again is much higher than most Mexicans have. And she's hoping to use that to trace their stories back, their ancestors really stories back to specific parts of West Africa, which at some point recently that was considered almost impossible to do because there was so 
little genetic information about Africans today or in the past, but that's getting slowly but surely a lot better. And so she's really hopeful she'll be, she'll be able to do that and sort of add some more detail again to these to people who whose stories were really who were really robbed of their their own histories and their stories when they came here. Okay, Lizzie, can you pull this all together? <laughs> I know you're at a meeting where all these people are talking about amazing finds in anthropology going on right now, but what does it mean that all this historical diversity is being picked apart, you know, in these kinds of studies? What what does it mean about, you know, the history of Latin America that we didn't know before? Well, I think it really adds to the picture of Latin America as sort of the place where globalization was invented. Like this is, as I said, this is the first place where everyone met each other. And sort of the genetic legacy of that is really, really interesting. And, and you know, many of these populations before meeting in Latin America, like Africans and indigenous Americans, had been separated from each other by tens of thousands of years. And I think it also really adds to this recent push in, in genomics and genetics to look at not only people who are the dominant culture or basically white Europeans have gotten a lot of genetic studies about them and everyone right. else have gotten less. And the, these sorts of studies give you a way to to sort of reveal these people who were marginalized in the past and marginalized today, you know, and, and tell their stories with new details and in new ways that might not have been considered very important in the past for, for people to do that. Okay. All right, Lizzie, thank you so much. Thank you. Lizzie Wade is a contributing correspondent for science. She covers archaeology and Latin America for the magazine from her home in Mexico City. She writes about uncovering hidden ancestry in Latin America this week in science. Also on the news site this week, we have stories on the evolution of ant slavery and land formations on Mercury that are now officially called snakes. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on tiered punishment for plagiarism in India and new rules for research data in China. You can read all of this and Lizzie's story at sciencemag.org news. Stay tuned, because next up, Kang Quinn Nee joins us to talk about building a molecule from exactly two atoms. This week's episode is also brought to you in part by Audible. With the much-anticipated star-studded movie release of Ready Player One, why not immerse yourself in the virtual world before watching the movie? Download and listen to Ready Player One with incredible narration by the unparalleled Will Wheaton on Audible. With an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more, Audible is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment. Whether it's on your phone, through your car, from a tablet, or at home on an Amazon Echo, Audible helps you listen to more books by letting you switch seamlessly between devices, picking up exactly where you left off. And as an Audible member, you get a monthly credit for any audiobook in the store, regardless of the price. Unused credits roll over the next month, and if you didn't like your audiobook, you can exchange it, no questions asked. Plus, your books are yours to keep. Go back and re-listen anytime, even if you cancel your membership. Visit audible.com slash science mag or text science mag to 500-500 to start your 30-day free trial with a free audiobook of your choice. Although we highly recommend listening to Ready Player One before the movie comes out. That's audible.com slash science mag, S-C-I-E-N-C-E-M-A-G. Or text science mag to 500-500 to start your 30-day free trial. 
Now we have Kang Kwen Ni. She's here to talk about her group's work combining two and only two atoms into a molecule. Welcome, Kang Kwen. Thank you, Sarah. So why would one want to do this? Can't you just get the same molecules by mixing a bunch of atoms together? Yeah, so the short answer I'll give you first is um, we want to build molecules in a very controlled way, and these are what we can work with currently. And now I can give you a long answer if you want. Yeah, let's hear the long answer. So there has been really a tremendous effort to cool and control atoms and molecules to a temperature that they're standing still, which allows better understanding of their properties, interactions, and reactions. These atoms can be used for other fundamental study and also for precision sensors or timekeeping devices like clocks. Or even with the molecules that are made out of two atoms, so still simple, that they can be more complex than that and then one can imagine that you can harness for a larger range of future applications. So what has been done before now in terms of controlling atoms this precisely and then forming a molecule for them? How is, how is what you did here different? Yeah, that's a very good question. So previously, molecules can already be assembled from atoms, but mostly in bulk gases or even from many small copies of reservoirs. Uh, technically, they're called optical lattices. But starting from exactly two atoms and getting control of the individual atoms of two kinds, this was the first time. And what kind of technology or, or different way of thinking about this process allowed you to do that? So optical tweezing um, single atoms has been around since the 2001 or so, but really allowing... Um, what we can achieve is to really sort of have a variant of that such that we can start tweezing the new elements. And then the other thing is that we are able to control two different single atoms using different colors of light, so really adding sort of different control by having different colors. So what you did here was, I think, sodium and cesium, and one one laser preferentially controlled one kind of atom and another color laser preferentially controlled a different kind of atom? Exactly. Very cool. So what you did was you made these atoms very cold, then moved them around with a laser, brought them together, and then you had to do one more thing, right? You had to put them in the same place and then somehow make them turn into a molecule? Right. So just through collision, they couldn't turn into a molecule because we had to, for physics laws, that we had to simultaneously conserve energy and momentum, and that's very difficult to do in these situations. So what we do is to shine another laser that are right on molecular resonances to be able to drive them directly into a molecule. So you had to add a little photon to the system in order to get them to form that molecule. Yeah. What did you observe when this molecule was being formed? Did you see things that hadn't been seen before because you were able to control the situation so carefully? So in this particular example, we saw new molecular spectroscopic lines, and that contributed to sort of deeper understanding the overall picture. Okay. And what else could we maybe learn from looking at building molecules this way? What kind of other kind of observations might we be able to make? One thing that we're thinking is we don't, you know, we know how to make one molecule now that we will want to know, well, we would parallelize the process to still have the individual atom control, but we simultaneously have many optical tweezers and make many molecules, or still individually, but separately, so that we can allow 
study of their interactions or reactions and things like that. So things are, can become more complex from simple building blocks. I see. And what about making a molecule with more atoms? Is that something that could also happen with the setup? Yeah, certainly. That's also that. So this is kind of the beginning of this approach. But I, sh- I should say that even for molecule with just two matter of two atoms, we can already do many things with them. One of the things that they do in Star Trek is they build things molecule by molecule in the various amazing devices they have aboard their starships. Is this is this kind of like that? Like, are we doing things where we can say, you know what I really want? I want a carbon and I want a sulfur right next to it. So I'm going to just use my machine to do that. I mean, is this the beginning of that or is this just a special, is this unrelated to that kind of thing? I think imagination is always good. <laughs> in a lot of things, you never imagine that it's possible. And, yeah. And it becomes possible. And, and a lot of things that are now possible to do, they have been in science fiction before. So Yeah, so I that's true. I, I don't want to say that it's not. This is not transporter technology or it is transporter technology. You don't have to say. Okay. So one other thing I wanted to bring up was, you know, you worked with two atoms that kind of corresponded to two different wavelengths of light in your lasers. How many different kinds of atoms can be controlled in this way, you know, by laser type? Is this going to be able to be expanded out? So this technique relies on laser coolings. And this, and in fact, that there is at least 25 different elements has been laser cooled. So not so much the carbon and oxygen, because those wavelengths are deep in the UV where technology is a bit difficult to work with, but there's at least 25 elements that had already been laser cooled. Okay. Kang Quen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sarah. Kang Quen Ni is an assistant professor at the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology at Harvard University and a principal investigator at the Harvard-MIT Center for Ultracold Atoms. She and her colleagues write about making a molecule from exactly two atoms this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places, or listen to us on the science site at sciencemag.org slash podcasts, where you can also find links to the research and news stories discussed in each episode. The show is produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music on behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.